Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, we have our good friend, Mark Snyder, former Detroit Free Press sports reporter and also co-author of the current book, Mountaintop, the inside story of Michigan's 1997 title climb. Mark has come to join us to talk about Sports Illustrated. The last couple of months have been absolutely brutal for this iconic brand. Vanity Fair had a kind of inside piece about how bad things are getting, and here's the best paragraph I read. S.L. Price was a newspaper guy making his bones as a young reporter at the Sacramento Bee in Miami Herald in the 80s and 90s. He covered sports, but those publications also allowed him to dip into other beats. One day, he might be reporting from the Olympics. The next, he would be in the thick of hurricane coverage. I loved working for newspapers so much, Price said. But in 1994, enticed by a significant salary bump, he left the world of dailies for a job at Sports Illustrated. It didn't take long for Price to realize that he had reached a promised land. It was the gold standard, he recalled. Price spent the next 26 years at Sports Illustrated, authoring 47 cover stories and profiling the likes of Serena Williams, Lionel Messi, and even Barack Obama. For much of that time, the magazine hummed with all of its editorial horsepower. Everybody in the building was smarter than you, and they made you look better, he said of Sports Illustrated Salad Days, when the magazine was still flush with advertising revenue and its pages rich with high-quality journalism. Price and his colleagues were supported by a deep newsroom infrastructure and empowered by the financial strength of the magazine, allowing it to become a hub of great ideas and daring journalism. Whereas the problem with journalism today, he added, is that so much of it is undermined subtly by this lack of confidence fueled by a lack of money. And Don, Mark, this is just an interesting story to me. As Sports Illustrated was in my life as a kid, I couldn't wait to read it each week. It always seemed like they had the best ideas that are out there. And yet, Mark, you were a journalist in the 90s. I've got to assume you've got opinions about Sports Illustrated. And Don, I'm sure that you also had your mind aware of Sports Illustrated as they were always running some sort of championship video after whatever team won. They were everywhere. What did you guys think about this article? Sports would, Illustrated I, was the definitive voice on everything and just getting it and looking at the stories, which were long form and exhaustive, illustrated a better understanding of what the athletes were like and what they're going through, whether it was accurate or not, I have no idea. But it was it was everything. You really look forward to that in the day. And that day seems to have ended. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think every Thursday, you know, everyone remembered coming home from school, at least our age, right? And opening the mailbox and knowing that it would be there. And uh, when you saw it, you, I mean, the cover, it was who's on the cover, right? Because that was always the definitive thing that determined, you know, what was going to be inside. And it was always a, an amazing photo shot and everything like that. And then inside, you know, the writing, these were long articles most of the time back then. And they were in depth. And what they did as journalists, they did the thing that was so difficult to do is to show you something that you didn't know. You know, even if you watch the game on TV or back then even listen to radio or whatever, or this big moment, there was no internet or anything. So you got to see these people in kind of a different vein. And that, that was kind of the advantage of Sports Illustrated, just a little inside baseball, I guess, as, as we'd say. What they did is because they didn't have the same deadlines as newspapers, what they were able to do is spend more time with the athletes, number one, and number two, you know, not run up to their com computer or whatever and kind of get a little more in depth and take the time to do that. And they had built such a brand, you know, over time that there was some cachet there that the PR directors would give them more access because they knew how it would come out on the other end. They said at its peak, Sports Illustrated had 3 million plus subscribers around the world I remember racing to the newsstand. Sometimes I, we did have a subscription, but still wanting to read it. And as you're saying, Mark, the idea that you could read this article about a game and then they would take you inside the locker room, right? And they would tell you about some conversation that two athletes had either in the middle of the game or after the game and the access they got. You felt like you were really learning about it. And yet you look at it now and you realize Man, a lot of their stuff was like kind of telling you about a game that had happened a week earlier and right. everybody yeah. was okay about like learning about the game a week earlier. Now 
it seems like you digest the game within a minute or two after it and you've moved on or you read everybody's Twitter comments about the game where the players are telling you what they think happened uh, or you're watching some random person's video clips from them there being with their phone. It's so different how we consume sports media. And is there still a place for long form journalism? Yeah, I think it's rare. And I think that that's, I guess that shift in the culture is kind of what you're talking about. And I can see the, the adjustment there, but I think that people still appreciate those deeper stories. The problem is that I think that people don't read as much. And I think that that's kind of the idea is that that depth is, it can still be there by the journalists and they can still get those stories, but there's not as much of a demand for it. And people don't care about going as in depth and learning about all the behind the scenes because they're on to the next thing. I think that's more of a culture thing about timeliness and, you know, value and uh, in terms of the tension span, maybe more than anything. You guys know as teachers, you know, how much that's changed too, right? Also, I think the supply has changed because athletes no longer need these writers as a venue or as a avenue to get to the audience. They can just go directly through their social media. And so I think the athletes are less likely to talk to reporters at this point. So that's both a supply and demand thing. Yeah, I think some of it is um, the exposure for their brands. They can do it different ways. I guess that's true. And it's more monetized that way. But I think that there is some of them realize the value in some of that and having those deeper relationships, those deeper profiles. Um, I mean, you know, I, yeah, I guess that involves their representation telling them, you know, this is something that would be valuable for you. And maybe they're not getting that advice quite as much anymore. I was reading something about overall print media and the you either had to be right on it like very instantly afterwards or really smart and if you're neither you're screwed and so newsweek uh, or so newsweek was neither really great analysis nor recent so that's gone but the new yorker still exists because even though it's delayed it's really really smart and really well thought out and great writing and research and uh, that's why it continues to exist. And I don't know if their numbers are rising or falling, but it's still out there and uh, in a similar way that it used to be. But I don't know where the Sports Illustrated falls on this. I feel like it was pretty smart analysis, but maybe this is just a flawed way of looking at it. The key to all of Sports Illustrated is money. And the fact that they spent so much money to send all these people to all these places and to invest in the time to get these extra stories and everything is something that they clearly as, as those articles have pointed out, they're not investing that same money. And I think the New Yorker is still operating the same way it always is. If there's a good story, they're going to send their person wherever it is, you know, around the world and sports illustrated, you know, their budget is cut and their right staff was cut and it changed obviously in that respect. This year, the last couple of weeks, this is where we're now really hearing about sort of this kind of seems like death spiral that Sports Illustrated is in. In fact, on Friday, I believe they just announced major layoffs of their newsroom, even more so than they already had. But I have to assume this has been uh, a work in progress over the last couple of decades. And I guess my question to you, Mark, is like, you know, around the 2000s is where I feel like ESPN.com kind of started making its own becoming its own hub for news and sports and analysis. And they also had a huge writing staff and were giving lots of coverage of stuff. And because you could just click on it and read it then, I, I could see we're already starting to make a magazine feel a little bit less relevant. Do you remember if even by the late 90s, early 2000s, people started thinking about Sports Illustrated as maybe a, a, a dinosaur and something that was just didn't really have a, a great future? Well, I think that it was people in the journalist, sports journalism industry, you know, the editors that, that my editors at the Free Press and stuff like that, they started changing the way we did our jobs. Instead of us doing, you know, a daily version of what Sports Illustrated was doing on a weekly basis, we were doing, you know, hourly. We were doing internet. We had to start embracing the internet and trying to write stories for the internet and get them up faster. And our deadlines changed in terms of we had the print deadline, obviously, at night, but we also were ready for the internet, so you had to keep going and keep updating things. And uh, then by the end of my time, we were doing little videos, you know, and stuff like that. And those are things that Sports Illustrated was very slow to adapt to the internet. I think that they felt that they had this magazine, it was a standalone figure, and that the brand would continue to 
live because they had higher quality stuff. And that wasn't really, people weren't going to pay for that necessarily as it went on because they realized that they wanted to get that, if they could get that online, you know, I, even, even before cell, like the iPhone in your hand, I mean, changed things, even on the internet, I think that they really were hesitant to embrace it because they didn't, they felt that we're this magazine and there was an arrogance to it as well. And they didn't, and if they weren't going to come around, you know, then people would have to come to them. And obviously that in all aspects of society, that doesn't work. I remember like these iconic writers like Peter King, Dr. Z, Jack McCallum, Tom Verducci, Rick Riley, Lee Montville. I mean, those were just huge names. And when they wrote something, it was always amazing and it was always interesting. And the idea of the sort of author star it was something that I think Sports Illustrated kind of launched for a lot of writers. It seems like, is it is it easier nowadays to become a writer with a big following, given the internet and given that you don't need a publication? Because I'm sure there were lots of people that felt like Sports Illustrated never gave them a chance. Or do you think it's harder to, to become a writer nowadays? And do you think it's easier to become a sports writer or is it easier to write about other things? Or is just journalism just harder in general now? Well, I think there's less accountability. You know, back then, those even, even though they were doing long form journalism, they were, you know, they had they were following journalism's rules about ethics and follow, you know, and, and following the way that, you know, journalism's di- journalism writers did everything. You know, it was kind of the focus of as you learned and as you grew up and I did at the Michigan Daily and, and beyond there, you know, there are certain ways you approach people and you trust the, with their stories and you follow. And I think ethics now are have slid down anyone can just write something because it's on the blog and then you get a following and then you know what's the there's not necessarily accountability if you make a mistake or you make a prediction or something like that and i think that that's the biggest thing that's changed so that's why the brand of the people that are out there you know there are some people who have a lot of followings but they just kind of move on like uh bill simmons obviously made himself into a monolith i mean now he's just a podcaster but when he was writing he would just write about whatever he thought it wasn't about and he'd just say things about people well there's no accountability if you say something about someone and you're not going to the, like the press conference that was something we always were taught you know is that if you write about someone especially if you write something that could be construed as negative you show up to the press conference the next time or the next opportunity and they have their opportunity to say something to you and that was not something you know with the at the internet, people just write things wherever they want. And if the following is accepting what they say is fact, they're not worried. You know, you guys probably aren't knowing about much about journalistic ethics at that point. You just want to read what you read and what you like. And so that's a big change. In terms of those guys as their individual brands, I think working for Sports Illustrated, yeah, gave them the platform. It never really translated, though, into – there was all diehard journalists that rarely translated into something that was in television or something like that. It seems like the ESPN – people they'd have to go to espn and those were more newspaper columnists people who did the daily stuff than the sports illustrated stuff by the way i just want to shout out to frank deford my favorite on sports illustrated who later did a short thing on npr which i thought was just brilliant but he um i, I read i listened to jeff perlman's podcast who was a sports illustrated guy yeah and he talked about it as like this was xanadu this was like the dream for all sports journalists that yep. there was unlimited resources there was this library that had all the quotes or everything that had ever been into sports illustrated and all these accumulate all this accumulated wisdom and just the, it was the dream absolutely those guys and i think that that was I think the resources, again, back to, I know he you just mentioned that, but it's something, they, the fact that they had all this money and they sent them all these places and they lived up in these luxury <laughs> hotels and travel and everything, like that makes a huge difference because you're getting, you're able to be everywhere. And when you're in people, like as a journalist, sports journalist back, back then, if you're a presence, then, pe- then you build that trust and you can spend all this time talking to people and not necessarily having a tape recorder in their face or a notepad out. You can build this relationships with these people and then you keep coming back. Like tennis, who's going around the world and covering the Grand Slam? Who's going to Australia? And then you're in Wimbledon and then you're at the French Open and you know then U.S. Open. Well, if you show up at all those places, you're the same person in all those places. You, the, you start to build a relationship with those you know, top tennis players, and then they start to trust you, and then they get the behind the scenes access. And then when you say, "Well, let's go to lunch," instead of talking right at the at the venue, you know, then they'll open up to you. And, and those are the kind of stories that Sports Illustrated got. They got the people a lot of times away from the 
venues and that's how you got the best stuff when you were in the 90s uh was sports illustrated ever a goal for you did you ever think like that's where i want to be someday yeah i I think so i mean obviously i ended up doing the job that i dreamed of from when i was the youngest you know covering the university of michigan for the Detroit free press and i loved doing that uh but i think that yeah sports illustrated as you got into the business you kind of realized that 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 is a gold standard because of all the opportunities that you would have and that you're not necessarily tied to a certain team or certain place or certain schedule. You know, you have, you are able to spend time doing things where it was really interesting. I mean, the, I loved learning about the mechanics of how sports illustrator work. The idea that what they did is they would go, let's say at the Super Bowl, Okay. They, they put embed two writers, a writer on each team, one of their best writers, and they would follow that team the whole two weeks or week, They'd write everything about that team and none of it would show up until one of those teams won the game. Mm -hmm. And so they'd have like 90% of the story written for that team. One of them, they'd fill in the details of the game, but they had all this background from whole week. And then one of them would go in the trash. Like the, this is what the sports illustrated Mm -hmm. always was always talked about how much they wrote that never made the magazine just because they had to be prepared. And, And a lot of it too, you know, sometimes if you're the guy covering the U.S. Open, you know, you wrote the whole you like kind of latched on to stories throughout the week. But most of it got lost because on that Sunday night, they would always talk about being up till four or five in the morning until they had to hit their deadline Monday morning. And, you know, just like can't flush a lot of it. So that's where they would have all those interesting anecdotes, stories, moments, speeches, right. fights. But only you would read it if the team won or or something, or maybe it was the losing piece, but they had already connected all of that. And then we're just looking for a result, almost like this is this is the formula that led up to the result of the game, you're saying. Yeah. And they didn't write about losing. They didn't write a lot of losing pieces over the years. I mean, I think that it, it would have to be some type of controversy or something or scandal or something. They didn't really, you know, write about the Super Bowl losing team. If they did, it was like a couple paragraphs that that other writer would just throw in kind of you know, this is what's next for that team or something. Now, you know, the losing stories sometimes are more interesting than the winning stories. And I, I think that there's some great newspaper columnists like Dan Wetzel of Yahoo, who is really, he always sees something that's different. Like there were many times, like a couple of those Super Bowls where Brady, Tom Brady lost and the Patriots lost to the Giants. Like he would go to Tom Brady's locker and just write about what Brady said, but what he looked like, how he was dealing with it, that would have never happened in the 90s, especially in Sports Illustrator, because they had this. People would actually like winners are kind of like, okay, they won, yay for them. But I feel like in our cynical uh, culture now, people actually would rather know about losing and who's fighting now and who's not happy with each other and, and immediately let that like watch the knives come out for each other. I almost wonder if there's more of a demand for that side of it than than who actually won. Yeah, I think there is now, and that's something that's been an evolution in sports journalism too, is that, I mean, it, it creates a lot more angles and a lot more interesting things for people. But I think when, for all those years, sports illustrated and newspapers to a certain extent, but newspapers were covering the team they're covering regardless. Uh, but sports illustrated, they went with the winners because they felt that that's who was going to sell. I mean, they still were selling this magazine, you know, and that was such a huge part of everything they were doing was selling the magazine. And so that was kind of a unique part of it and then i think once that philosophy changed in the world then you know they had to, they were slow to adapt and i think that's a lot of the story of sports illustrated is slow to adapt in a lot of things to the internet to the changing culture to attention spans and all of those things kind of go in the soup of how it ended up where it is because if you are the winner and you're a fan of the winning team you bought the magazine just to have the cover i mean that's what the video it was yeah yeah you'd like i got the sports illustrated cover of the michigan wolverines winning in 1997 i think i still have it somewhere and so like it's it was a thing and then you didn't want to read the story about the losers you want to read more winter glory they also sold don a bunch of shoe phones right i think don't you have those (laughs) you tried to wait you try to wear those too for running (laughs) No, I did not have the shoe phone, but I do remember that. And there'd be a Sports Illustrated video, as Zach says, advertised on TV. Whatever team won, though, get your New Jersey Devils hockey championship video. Remember all the seasons and the moments from the season, right? And you had to, of course, subscribe for like three more years to the magazine or something like that. Oh, yeah, those promotions. I mean, that was the marketing team, you know. 
and they were able to get those subscriptions with all those little gimmicks and everything like that. But I think that that's, you know, that's what a business was at that time. And, the, and it was just fueling the journalism because of the resources. And I think that newspapers, you know, I mean, I heard from older people in newspaper when I got into newspapers that there was a lot of that, you know, they, they would spend a lot more money. They went everywhere, but they were never doing it like Sports Illustrated. There was like when you would go to events, Sports Illustrated, those guys were in a different class because of the timeliness and because they had the time to work on those pieces over a week. Now, when you were possibly saying like, that's my ultimate goal, sure. what, would it, what would it have taken for someone like yourself or anybody who wanted to get into Sports Illustrated? What would be the process? Like, would you have to send your writing samples or would you need to have your credentials or would they be finding you and have talent scouts out there looking to find you or how, do, how does yeah. that sort of process work? Well, I think that like you said about Scott Price at the beginning of that story, you know, I think that that they find you. I mean, that, that was my understanding of kind of how that worked. I came in a little bit later than that, but I think that, you know, look, in terms of, I think a lot of, some people actually started as fact checkers and they would go there. Um, I get, you guys know who Pablo Torre is? Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and Pablo was a fact checker there. And Perlman, I think, might have been too. I'm not sure. But um, they started just at the bottom. You get in there and you check. I mean, that was what something Sports Illustrated was incredibly known for, you know, at least in the industry is the fact checkers. They would have these people and all they would do is go through those stories and make calls. So they would report the story basically a second time. So the writer would write the story and then they'd go through and they'd call back all those sources and they'd say, is this what you said? Did you mean this? What happened at this time? And they'd put in, they'd tweak it and, you know, boost those stories a little bit, which is really an incredible amount of labor, you know, to have people who were just paid just for that. It's not like a newspaper where, you know, your editor would say, well, what about this? Or what about, they'd ask you questions, the writer. They had people who actually did that. And that was their full-time job. And I think that they ascended, you know, up the ladder a little bit. And then they would get to write a piece or two here. But the main writers yeah they came from newspapers or, or they were found um having written some long form pieces that really caught people's eye won awards or whatever you mentioned that as your job changed at the free press where it soon became about having both a print piece but then online content in the in the article they said that all of a sudden quotas were starting to be put on to the writers and that it was about how much more stuff can you put on for online and it's about chasing clicks and it seems like that's the current business model for sports illustrated is getting people to click on something that uh sports illustrated is making can you talk a little bit about like what that's like did you have quotas put on you as to like how well, many videos or things you should be putting up there let's go back to the sports illustrated guys i know we're on audio here but i got a hard eye roll on that one um <laughs> because like those guys yeah they wrote one story a week they spent a week working on it okay them saying talking about quotas that they would have to write more than once a week <laughs> they would have to you know write for the online it, i mean to me that that gets a little um you know disingenuous you know not this is not how the other world lives right you know, they're the only ones doing that in terms of us in daily journalism. Yes, of course. I mean, with the Internet, that changed quite a bit. I mean, when it was before the Internet, yeah, basically we had to what we did is you just wrote. I mean, if you went to a game, you wrote a game story and you wrote maybe a note like a notebook with some small notes or something like that. But then beyond that, you know, that was your job. And then you moved on. And once you sent it, you were done. Um, but the Internet, yeah, we had to do stuff. And that's kind of the thing. And. Because what you would do is when something happened during the day, you'd have to write it right away and send it in for the internet. And, you know, I mean, quotas, I guess it, it was more clicks, you know, once they were able to measure how many people were reading those things, then it just kind of fueled the thing. And that's kind of where, what happened to me. You know, I just kind of got on that Michigan train and especially Michigan football was at times the largest, you know, uh, clicked thing on all of, the Detroit free press and I sure Detroit news and everything in the city. Now the lions at, at times would surpass it. And I think that's probably evident right now about the lions when the lions are winning, you know, they're the, they're the whole story. They're every, they dwarf everything. Michigan won the national championship. And two days later, you know, everyone's talking about the lions, you know, there's the shortest lived championship that I can ever remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's just kind of the nature of it. Um, the world changed and everything became more instant as you were talking about before and newspapers had to adapt to that or else they were going to die. They may be dying anyway, but you know, they did their best to try to 
late in the game. I mean, no one got ahead of it, right? I mean, no, if when uh, the internet came out, you know, was really coming around in the late 90s, people had jumped on it. People could have, these newspapers could have adapted and really been what they are now. Then everyone's like, no one will read a digital version. No one will, you know, click on it. Well, you know what they did and you, you were too late to adapt. It's it's interesting because they it sounds like it's a, a classic idea of there's value in the brand called Sports Illustrated. And the article just kind of went on to say that basically in 2017, a group called Meredith bought Time Incorporated for around $3 billion. That included the Sports Illustrated brand. By 2019, uh, another entity called Authentic Brands bought Sports Illustrated for $110 million. And then somewhere around there, another group called Arena Group paid $45 million to operate and publish Sports Illustrated for a 10-year period. And they've taken it down now from 50 issues a year. There's now just 12 issues that are actually written and sent out to people each year. Uh, they said, though, that they have gotten their website traffic to increase to about 50 million people maybe a month or so. But it just sounds like such a diminished iconic brand and you know every once in a while on my apple news feed i'll see sports illustrated and i'll say oh sports illustrated is reporting something this must be important but then a lot of what i'm seeing is watch taylor swift walk through you know the tunnels of arrowhead stadium and it's literally just them reposting somebody else's video of taylor swift walking and it's like what this is sports illustrated now whereas we're just kind of retweeting other people's tweets and i've noticed that they almost just tend to like repost what other news organizations have already written it it just seems like a very hollowed out shell of what it once was well that's when people in the industry realized you know that this was not the same thing which is terrible for the writers who are there who are the talented because when that that new group bought them what they did is they said well we're going to be hyper local and what that meant was they were just getting bloggers in all these cities. And there's no none of that vetting credential like we talked about before and taking the best of the best. They're just getting people who just, you know, are grabbing whatever they can. Some of them went to press conferences, some of them didn't. Some of them writing about recruiting or whatever they see and just kind of, and there's no accountability to it. And so the people who are still there, who are the elite writers, like are now associated with what's happening and they have to be accountable for you know, some because it's under the same banner. Like uh, Michael Rosenberg, good friend of mine, longtime columnist in the Detroit area, Detroit Free Press. You know, he left for Sports Illustrated, and he's done wonderful work there as a columnist and in terms of investigative stories and feature stories. But over that time, you know, for him to be associated with someone who's just like, you know, walking down the street on Michigan's campus and saying they saw you know, back then, Jabril Peppers on a scooter, you know, <laughs> he, cra he crashed into a, you know, into the party store. I mean, or he went in and bought whatever, you know, I mean, that's like not, that's not the same job. It's not the same association. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how he feels, but I feel bad for him to be associated with that. You know, there are great people who are still and legitimate, awesome journalists like Pat Forty, another guy i was friends with in the business he does college football and horse racing in the olympics and uh you know like i read stuff like this week i tweeted about it he wrote you know this takedown ohio state hired this uh athletic director from texas a&m his name's ross bjork and basically pat just wrote about all the thing the terrible things that have happened and how he's how ross bjork is mismanaged at all of his stops and had ncaa violations under him and terrible coaching hires and all and mismanagement in terms of giving Jimbo Fisher, you know, a ridiculous contract extension. And yet he keeps falling upwards. And now he's at Ohio State, which is maybe the biggest athletic department in the country in terms of revenue for sure. And how does he end up there? And Pat just took him down and pointed out all these things. Well, that's the kind of stuff that's fading in journalism because, you know, you have to be accountable and you have to be willing to not be favored, you know, not be friends or, or want people to like you. And that's, the kind of stuff that's going to go away on some level nationally, at least if sports illustrated goes away. The other thing about lost value is when you got your sports illustrated in the mail and you open it up, there is a whole magazine. There of a lot of things that you weren't necessarily interested in, but you read it because it was in sports illustrated. Like I remember so. reading a 
horse radio a horse racing article they covered mm-hmm. horse racing a lot i had no interest in horse racing but i learned a little bit about it because i was reading it in sports illustrated the only reason i was reading it is because sports illustrated thought it was important and also it helped other sports because even if you're just a football guy but si's got a big article on carl lewis you read about carl lewis and therefore you were interested in the summer olympics and of course those are the ones i was looking forward to but i read the other stuff too just because it was there and this is also true of newspapers where you read it because it was in front of you. So you had a more diverse understanding of the world of sports, in the case of Sports Illustrated, because you just read about many different sports. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was reading some of these postmortems, you know, this weekend, uh, just kind of the idea of Sports Illustrated dying and what it was. And there was some cool threads on, on Twitter about people posting their favorite Sports Illustrated covers over the years and it kind of brought back all these different memories and everything. But one thing like you saying, Don, that they did is they used those resources to set themselves apart. Like at the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996, they produced for the 18 days of the Olympics, they produced a full episode for people on the ground locally every day. I mean, it's insane, but I mean, and and they had a huge staff to do it obviously. And they hired a bunch of people to do it. Um, but to turn those around every day. So if you're a track fan like you and you're living there, you're getting or you just go to the Olympics and you're there for a week, the week of track or whatever, and you're getting that every day. That is just heaven for you. Right. And they use those resources to that end. Um, but, you know, no one would do anything like that anymore. No, and people knew who Mary Decker Slaney was and when she fell and who Zola Budd was. And nobody would know now because that is something that wouldn't be covered in mass media. But because it was an SI, it was a story and people identified with those people and knew who they were. Yeah, I mean, that idea of, of creating those unique personalities, they built some brands, right, of some of these athletes, right? Absolutely. Is this just a problem or a sad thing for people that are like age 40 and over and that sports illustrated had its moment it had an amazing run but like a lot of things just isn't going to have the staying power of eternity and therefore i just kind of wonder like most young kids probably have no idea what sports illustrated is they don't understand what it once represented but there's also a billion other places to get sporting news and information And I don't know if long-form journalism is what younger people want. And therefore, while it's kind of a a sad idea that this thing is dying, is it really just a problem for people our age? Yeah, that's fair. I think kids know more about stuff. They have more facts and they have more access to more information. I don't think they appreciate good writing as much as they should or have the attention span, but they do have access. And I'll make this analogy. You know, when people got Sports Illustrated, different people, maybe the same people, got Rolling Stone. And they read all about music and what was happening in music. The kids now know a lot of music, not only current, but also past. Because with Spotify, they have access to everything that was ever played and made and recorded. And so they know stuff that I, like, I can mention songs from, like, the Humpty Dance from the 80s. They know it. Because they have access to that stuff unlimited. We didn't have access to past music. And we didn't have access as much to past stories. But they have access to everything. Um, now, they don't get as in-depth or as well-thought-out analysis. But they do have access to everything. And if you mention something um, about an old sports story, they'll look it up. And they'll be like, oh, wow, well, that guy was really good. Like, oh. Who? But they don't really understand it and read it at the level of the depth. They'll look up his high, the guy, the woman's highlights, right? They won't necessarily like my nephew is nine years old and he loves basketball. He's just obsessed with it, but he would, he has no interest in reading about it or anything like that. Like uh, the articles, my brother will ask him, he'll say, well, what about this? You want to learn more about this, about Giannis? He's like, no, but did you see the dunk he had last night? (laughs) You know, I mean that it's all about the clip clips c-l-i-p-s not clicks like we were talking about before but it's just kind of that's his whole obsession is the highlights and like he'll say he'll like look up uh, trivia or something like that but never wants to get into depth about like Giannis's origin story you know and traveled around the world to get here and all that kind of stuff which is the thing that when i was young would fascinate me and i wanted to read about that disney plus made a movie of it too though you can just watch that (laughs) yeah and you probably watched it i don't know you probably did you're right. It's very surface level. I've had that talk with my son. Like, we're wa- my wife and I love Charles Barkley, so we're watching Charles Barkley on TNT. Right. And like, is Charles Barkley any good? He talks a lot of trash. Like, 
pull up his YouTube, the YouTube <laughs> right. highlight. You're like, oh my God, he was a monster. <laughs> right. But he's one of the few people there is good footage of. If anything's in standard depth, they're like, no, 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 I don't know. I get no interest in that. Like old Kareem <laughs> stuff. Like, no, I got no interest in that. My uh, sixth grade daughter last night asked me, Dad, what what's the curse of Bobby Lane? And I just kept thinking, like, uh, well, it's this guy that told the Lions they'd never win. But I was right. like, I think the only way we could learn about it, if we mm. went back to some, like, archival, like, newspaper or maybe a Sports Illustrated piece from, like, the 50s or 60s. And I just thought, she's never going to want to read that. And so I just said, it's a guy that said the Lions would never win. And it happened. And that's it. <laughs> right. I don't know if she wants to put the time into, like, you know, read microfiche or something like that. That's the nature of this whole thing. Like, like the Lions and their success, you know, people are like, oh, they haven't won in a while. <laughs> well, if you're if you're someone who's in middle school now or even high school, you don't even understand what that means, like that they haven't won. Like the perspective of them not winning in the last, you know, in your lifetime is one thing, but them not winning in the last 75 years, that's another. Well, and that would be the question is, do you think that's the piece that, or has it been written or has it not been written in the right way where if the Lions, for instance, uh, are able to win and maybe make it to the final four, all of a sudden, doesn't that mean, or maybe if the Lions get to the Super Bowl, that would be obviously, you know, very fantastical speaking here. But isn't that the story that Sports Illustrated would write is to help the nation understand what a tortured fan base this really is? And how deep and how long this goes, but also how this team sort of seems to reflect our city and the economic ups and downs. That's the piece that maybe would be written by Sports Illustrated if Sports Illustrated still existed in its old format, right? It would, and it would be written in a span of a week, and then it'd come out and uh, people would read it as a preview, maybe. But then... If there was a documentary six months later, people would devour that because they'd run to watch it on TV. They just would rather do that, I think. Um, I think that's the nature of just kind of how things are. Or a three-minute piece before the Super Bowl on that pregame show, right, Don? Or the YouTube channel, the link that somebody's got. Or, right, you right. know, Bill Simmons talking about it with Cousin Sal on a podcast and people just yep. like Bill Simmons, so they listen to that. Well, I guess that's just kind of depressing is it is it seems like what's happened here is, uh, you know, Warren Buffett was famous for essentially looking for stocks that he thought were undervalued in the 1950s that were like he he and he, he called them like cigarette butts. And basically, like this company still has one or two puffs left on the cigarette butt. And then and there's value there. And I feel like that's what's happened to Sports Illustrated is some company sees the name and let's just drive lots of clicks and, and get whatever final value is. But is there any way to like, like rebuild the brand or is it just dead? Is there any way to like change the course of where this company just seems to be headed besides just clickbaits of, you know, people on scooters and Taylor Swift walking through tunnels? Well, that's uh, me. You know, people in journalism, you know, are, are saddened by it because this was part of our life, not just as fans, like, but, um, you know, this aspirational quality of this is the best of the best. And this is the stuff that we could never get as journalists because of time, because of cost, because of what resources, whatever access. But, you know, to see things like I think I saw a story the other day. They're going to build a hotel and brand it a Sports Illustrated hotel. What does that even mean? Right. Like, are they <laughs> are they themed rooms or something like that? I mean, the wallpaper is just going to have former it's, covers. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing and it cheapens mm. the brand. And I know that's kind of people say that's, you know, elitist or arrogant about as a journalist or something like that. But it's something that people feel protective of, even though we never worked there, you know, because it was this gold standard. But now I think that journalists now they don't even think about kids who are in college who are going to be journalists or young journalists. They don't think about anything of it twice because they're it's. 15, 20 years past when it was relevant for them. They they said in the article that a lot of the writers at Sports Illustrated, when all of these different sales were happening, they kept hoping that maybe a billionaire sports right. fan would kind of come in to save the entity and just sort of make it almost like a, like a nonprofit organization. 
Uh, we've seen billionaires come in. I think Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, and we've seen others try to come in. I think uh, Steve Jobs' wife owns the uh, the Atlantic, for instance, and maybe just somebody who wants journalism and doesn't really care about profits uh, would be there. It didn't happen. Does that actually seem like a winning model, though? To, <laughs> no, of course to, not. To be a, a nonprofit organization or at some point, you've got to have a product that people want to pay for. Am I correct? Yeah, I think there's got to be churn, too. I mean, you know, what are you paying for? You're paying. What's the return on it? Is this just your own little toy? Right. I mean, who's, who are you doing it for? And that's I mean, that's the end game of everything. Right. What's the goal? Who's the audience? And does it still exist? And I mean, if they're just going to keep pumping money in, you know, even, no, no matter how much money you have, you can't do this for just yourself. I mean, you just those people would just pay for the access themselves and go to the games and get whatever they want. You can use your money to do whatever you want, right? You can now NIL, you can just have someone come for a player, come for your company, Caleb Williams or whatever, um, uh-huh. JJ McCarthy, whatever. And, and do the same thing. You can have a commercial for your business and have your Patrick Mahomes in your commercial. I think that there are other ways to get your access and to be in the sports world other than uh, just buying this magazine and having this static thing. Does it surprise you that, you know, I, I believe the New York Times, for instance, just recently purchased The Athletic and that, that another media company didn't want the SI brand under their umbrella. Like, I don't know, the Wall Street Journal, for instance, maybe it wants to get into some sports and have that brand. It, it just it seems interesting that that SI ended up kind of where it is instead of maybe a more marketable or reputable journalism brand that would want that name, because I do think the name still has value, as we're clearly seeing. That's just the nature of the changing times. I think that it doesn't have the same value. And I think we are the old guys, right, at this point. And uh, as we grow older and we still cling to many of the things that we thought were important when we were young, the world changes around us. And, you know, and people in business have to realize that that's going. I mean, in education, it's been obviously, as we've talked about many times, you guys talk about every week, it's a change. It's a slower to change. So it's not as you don't have to be as responsive Mm -hmm. and make as such as many you know sharp cuts but you know here i think that that this has changed so quickly in the span of 20 years about what sports journalism is and what the sports audience is that you know you have to adapt are journalists at all ever disappointed that they decided to go down into the road of journalism given just how hard it seems like the business is now uh do do they ever just say i should never have gotten into it or do any of them ever see a model or have they ever thought about a model that maybe works or is the model nowadays to kind of have your own Patreon site or one of these websites where basically people can pay and follow just you in your writing? Is there still a model out there for a sports journalist or a journalist in general, or is it just really bleak out there for a lot of writers? Well, it's never been a lucrative profession. I think that that's pretty clear from the beginning. And that's why people who love sports don't go into it. You know, people who could be talented, you know, would go to law school or something to that effect. You know, I think analytics has created maybe some more jobs in the, in the sports industry in that sense. But I think for the most part for the, it was the same forever, right. Until it was always, you wanted to become a, you get into newspapers, you'd apply for newspaper, you'd, cover you do a beat maybe high school sports you work your way up to a college sports you become maybe a columnist and that would be your your life over time maybe you switch newspapers once or twice but you know a lot of times and that was your career and that was the case for 40 years 50 years and it just and then all of a sudden the internet changed it all and everything became more instant became more quick became so much more fatiguing i think because it was a constant process you know you had structured hours even though they weren't the same hours that everyone else had you know because you were working nights and stuff you still had structured hours and then once the internet came there was no off switch and that kind of is what one of the reasons i left the profession is because um you know i was constant with twitter and everything that was happening (laughs) the jim harbaugh tornado you know it was just it was a lot of everything and uh and I think that, that the way that changed, I think some people are built for that, but I think people can't last as long doing that. And the people who are still there are people who have kind of kept going, but they're, they, they, 
beat writers can't last as long because you just can't the churn is just too much for you. It's a constant process. And I think people, you know, have started to understand that. And there used to be more support, right? On a beat, you would be multiple people who would come and do a game and give people time off. So now those don't even exist. So, you know, they'll pull from a national store or something. If you read the Detroit Free Press, there's a lot of stuff from like USA Today content that they fill it in with because they just don't have enough of a staff, a big enough staff anymore. Now, I agree with everything you're saying, both of you, about the loss of Sports Illustrated and the sadness. But on the upside, if you're a high school kid, you can publish all your highlights instantly. And everybody sure. that you love can see you. And that's great. You don't know. You know, I love looking at like the top. There's always a little Sports Illustrated article about like who the best runner was in the nation at high yep. school. Well, now you can learn about everybody. My kids know everybody that's competing in their area in the nation. And you can mm-hmm. publicize yourself and you can read yeah. about all your contemporaries. I think that's part of the reason you two don't know or care, but track and field times are dropping tremendously. And it's partially due to shoes, but it's mostly at the high school level. And part of the reason is people know what everybody's doing and how they're doing it. And they're publicizing what they do, why they do it. There's more research available. So there's less in-depth thought out journalism and life sucks for journalists in many ways. But on the other side, there is an abundance of information and more ability to publish and be heard for what you are doing, especially at the local level and the small level. And I think that's a value that we've not explored. In addition, also less carbon, less people flying around, <laughs> less newspaper, yes. less yes. paper being made and delivered to houses. It's all local people watching trash online and commenting. That's a safe. That's a save savings, right? Right, right. It's just sad. I mean, it's sad for people like me. It's sad for people. I'm I'm the end of it. I think I'm the end of old school journalism and the way newspapers were, and you know the value on reporting and stuff. I mean, there are people older than me who are still in it. But I think that really I'm one of the last ones who got in right at the time to experience that. And I I was fortunate, obviously, to be where I was at the time and basically to do it in the 2000s, you know, the 90s and 2000s, which is like the golden era of sports in Detroit. Um, And everything was great for all that time. And so I got to go to everything and see everything and do everything. But it just I think it'll never be the same. And I think it's something that's kind of gone forever. I mean, there will be good stories once in a while. But it's not the constant daily like I look at the newspaper and there's, you know, there's not stuff in there that I want to read. Like in some of the stories, for example, this week, you know, there, I think that if the Lions had been this successful 20 years ago, there would have been a lot more interesting stories. And I think that now the access teams have tightened the access because they don't need necessarily the writers as much. They still tolerate them just because of tradition more than anything else. But I don't think they need them because they can put out their own content. And it devalues the whole journalism aspect because you can't get things that you need as a journalist. Absolutely. I would love to have see a journalism class where the writer says, here's a stack of things from 1980, like a, a week in 1980. Here's the New Yorker, the Atlantic, the Na- National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, Rolling Stone, and just – one week of a typical reading of a fairly literate person in 1988, let's say. And then now here, just read this whatever trash uh, from this week in, two th- in, 19, in 2023 or 2024. And it would be a more, there'd be more details, more things covered now, but the writing would just be so much better and you'd learn so much better from that week in 1988. Do you think your kids would care, though, Don? I mean, your kids are high school kids. Do you think that they they would read the others and appreciate that it was better writing? Or they'd say, I don't care about this. This isn't interesting to me. No, because they have access to so many other things. And they can go and chat with their friends about whatever's going on. You know, like my boys ran an attract meet yesterday. And afterward, not long afterwards, like, well, wait till my friend from Lake Orion sees the times I ran. And he's going to have to respond and measure up tomorrow and, like, Oh yeah, like he doesn't have to tell him the times. The kid can look him right. up, and he'll see it. Right. And like it's all instant. So no, they wouldn't. Now stranded on a desert island <laughs> with all those magazines, maybe they do it, but they don't know what that's like, and that's okay. Right. It's just different times. Right. But Absolutely. I just think it's it would be an interesting project to like for somebody to analyze. Like, wow, this is a really different 
experience and a way to learn about what's happening in the world through these long, long form journalism uh, situations rather than now. And ultimately, I think people are more fun to talk about that read that stuff. Like I just read in National Geographic a whole 20 page article on Papal New Guinea, and I'm ready to talk about it. Like, well, that'd be interesting as opposed to somebody's like, you see that tweet about what happened in Yemen? Ugh. Like, yeah. Well, one one thing that that you will, can talk about too with sports associators, they were really, I mean, when you had a book coming out that was really an interesting book, they would run the excerpt of it, the best books. So it kind of uh, was a launch, a launching right. point a lot of times for sports books too, and it tied into the publishing world. I think all that New York stuff was kind of incestuous at some point, um, but I think that that was an opportunity to have this platform, like you said, three million people, whatever. And they would there's there was no other way to promote a book at that point. You know, maybe you went on the Today Show or something like that. But I mean, other than that, you know, to get the excerpt in Sports Illustrated, I'm sure led to millions of sales for these books. And people read books because the Sports right. Illustrated came out on Thursday and you were done right. by Friday and you right. needed something to uh, fill your time on the weekend until the uh, Lions game or the Jets game started. Right. Yep, absolutely. Mark, a question then. You mentioned just a little bit ago about how probably the coverage of the Lions 20 years ago would be different. Lots of different stories, different perspectives, more people on it. Um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I've watched Jim Harbaugh give lots of interviews kind of leading up to Michigan's uh, sort of run during the, the final four. And then also at the end, and every one of his interviews were always just like, Jim, what's going on? And he would then talk about his chickens or he would literally ignore whatever questions people wanted to ask him to just sort of say whatever he wanted to say. And there was kind of nobody from a journalistic perspective to keep him on point or hold his feet to the fire to get sort of an answer. Obviously, lots of controversies with the University of Michigan this year. Do you think 20 years ago he would be covered differently and what do you think journalists would do to get an answer from him? Whereas I just felt like everybody just seemed happy that Jim even put his face in their microphone for a minute and then they would just let him off. I don't know. I think he's a unique case. He's different than everyone else, really. Um, I think that if you look across the sports landscape, college pro, th there aren't many people like him who that. I think a better example would maybe be Belichick, you know, who never, who never, and never really answered the questions um, and he would avoid whatever he want, didn't want to talk about. Like this year, they kept going after him about, you know, this is your last year. Is this going to be it? You know, all these, and he just kind of avoided it. And they just understood it's It's a transactional thing though. Right. Cause they wanted him to answer questions about the team as well. And he would talk about that. And Jim would talk about some of that too, you know, but it was never, he was never like the main source for what was happening on that team. And I think at some point, you know, the first couple of years when he was there, yeah, we kind of always felt that there was, he was going to give us some insight into the team. So it was worth kind of dealing with the rest of his oddities and the way he was as a person, you know, in terms of interacting with people and stuff like that. But it, at one point, you know, I think I would say I just realized that, you know, maybe he wasn't the best source for that stuff. And when the coordinators would talk or the players would talk, they would tell you more about what was happening than him. And maybe it was maybe it's strategic on his part, you know, to avoid it because he's been in the spotlight for, you know, 30, 40 years. So he's maybe honed that a little bit, too. And other people are more willing and eager to, you know, be accommodating because they view their job. I mean, that was always as a journalist is a little again inside baseball, but. The way I always viewed it is, you know, just because they were making more money than me and they had a higher spotlight than me, I still had a job the same way they had a job. And I would respect their job and ask them questions about it. And they should respect my job, even though, you know, we were different in a different tax bracket. And that worked with a lot of people, but it didn't work with everyone. And some of them were just arrogant and they thought we were an annoyance. But part of the reason that they were promoted and was because people knew them because of the newspapers and everything. And obviously now that's not the case. So they need to serve whoever the master is that helps them, whether that's NIL and the businesses, you know, who are giving them money or it's TV, you know, I, I, these people still sit down for some of these interviews on the TV, like before the NFL games and everything, they'll have features before the, those games. And sometimes I'm kind of surprised that they, that they'll sit there and let them, you know, come in their house for, you know, uh, a day and do some footage with their, them playing with their kids or whatever. I don't, 
I don't think there's the same benefit. I think it's a way more, you know, con- to be able to control it the way they can. I, I don't blame them. But I think just Harbaugh, you know, I think he's unique that way. But I think for the most part, you know, them not answering the questions is a philosophy that they can take at this point more now because they have the other outlets, as Don said earlier, you know, there are other avenues to promote themselves. When he Give talked to my Boy Scout troop in 1986, he was very self-disclosing. given nil and transfer portal and just the chaos that is college football do you ever wish that you were still covering michigan it seems like there would be even more for you to be printing and writing on a 24-hour basis not a day there nope i'm not i do not miss it at all you know even with the great season that michigan had and the highs and the lows and everything i it just isn't something that interests me. I mean, I did it and I enjoyed it when I did it, but I think that now it's such a different landscape. You know, it's people don't appreciate, you know, maybe talented writing. They don't appreciate, you know, the stories as much. You, you don't get as much run from them. Um, you know, I think that to be able to die and it's really hard to dive into stuff on the depth that you want to dive into it. And that's something that, you know, was somewhat frustrating to me too, because you couldn't get the access to people. People didn't want to sit down with you. They didn't want to have their story told in a way. So, you know, that kind of is not something I miss that much. Well, you ironically published a book called Mountaintop, the inside story of Michigan's 1997 title climb. It came out in September and this just happened to be the year that Michigan wins the next national title uh, just curious, how has your book gone and what kind of feedback have you received from the book? I think it's been good, hopefully. Uh, hopefully people have enjoyed it. I know you guys did. I appreciate you guys talking about it when it came out. I think that the reason that we wrote the book was because uh, they want they asked us to. Lloyd Carr and John Jansen, as we talked about, you know, asked me to help write this book. And I said to them, well, I want this to not be the stories that people know. I want this to be the stories that people don't know. And that's kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, right? You know, it had to be stories that people could understand the behind the scenes of what happened. And that has really been the great joy for the guys who we that they told us their stories and trusted us with their stories, that they were able to have some of those things. And some of them were raw. You know, there were things in that book that people had not known about previously. And I think that those guys to be opening up 25 years later has been great. What I've done is I've started to go around, going around the country and giving talks. I'm not just doing readings, you know, I'm giving talks about the book and I talk about things that are in the book, but I'm also having players and people associated with the team come to those events. And what they're doing is they're sharing their stories and the behind the scenes and the things that people don't know about what happened. And that's kind of the difference between this current team, which when you're in the moment, Don can remember 1997 being in the moment, you see the games, but even Don being on campus and everything didn't know so much of the behind the scenes because you're not interacting. You're not seeing all that stuff that leads up to it. And so 25 years later, we were able to show a lot of that. Maybe in 25 years, you know, or 10 years or whatever, this team will be willing to share their stories of what happened behind the scenes, but they may not, you know, because there may be a di- not as many avenues for them to get that out there. Well, I was going to say, it seems like this last year's national title, there's a ton of behind the scenes stuff to to talk about and report on. Do you have any interest in starting to be the aggregator who collects all the stories and, and has another book that comes out about the 2023-24 uh, national title? Well, I think that the key is that the guys would have to want to do it. And I think that the way things work now, it seems to me, is a lot of those things will come out like J.J. McCarthy will write his book and Jim Harbaugh will write his book, Blake Corn will write his book, or if they're not books in, you know, whatever, in some form or document, they'll have their own documentaries. To get it all consolidated into one place like we did and have it all come out in one location is going to be a foreign concept in my mind going forward for something like this because everyone's going to have their own attempted profitability this and I will tell you this book has not been profitable, but for me, but it's been enjoyable at the very least. And and I think that that's one of the great things about our project and what we did. And maybe we're at the end of the ability of people to do this is it's all in one place. So they're always this is what Lloyd Carr wanted when they came to me for the book. It's on the shelf. 
it's in one location and maybe that'll be a documentary at some point, you know, for, for this, this current team or whatever, but it's all contained in one place. And I think that in the future, I don't think that's going to happen very often. It's going to be very hard to get all of the fresh stories in one location. And I, there are probably some stories that, you know, when Charles Woodson writes his own book, his memoir or Tom Brady does that they're going to have some stories about this team. We didn't have every story probably, but I think we got enough of them that it was the definitive tale. And I don't know that anyone else is going to be able to do that on this team. Besides uh, covering Michigan, I I have to ask, uh, you were at the free press during a lot of lean years for the Detroit lions. Finally, there are people that are getting to watch a, a team that is competent, a team that's winning, a team that is just fun to Um, see what's going to happen each Sunday. You were probably there when, man, this wasn't a whole lot of fun. And I was just curious if you had any stories or anecdotes about either you covering the Lions or people you knew covering the Lions and maybe just how low did it ever get when you had to kind of just report on just another brutal loss or just more incompetence? Well, actually, it's really funny you say that because it's the opposite. I mean, it was always this sleeping giant, right? I mean, no matter how things were going, Michigan football was a behemoth. And like I talked about the clicks earlier, Michigan was rolling. And even when Michigan was bad, the people were fascinated by the Rich Rodriguez era. The numbers were crazy because people just were obsessed with it. And I think that's people, you know, there was some of that with the Lions too, because it's all one, it's one team that everyone cares about. And football is the dominant sport in our country. And I think that I was always amazed. Like I would go out to training. I did, I did a fair amount of Lions. I did, you know, hit and miss for some years, but I wasn't like the beat writer, but I would help and contribute. Like I said, you know, we would have multiple people covering the team and I would fill in for, you know, the reporters when they were around Kurt Sylvester at the free press here, when he would need some time off or whatever it was a day here or there. But I remember going to training camp and they would let those fans in and people would be lined up and they would swarm there. They had all their shirts and pens and, you know, helmets to sign and everything. And this is like post Barry. Um, and they just, People were just still going all the time. People loved the Lions. And I was just fascinated. I was never obsessed with the Lions that way. I was always more of a college sports fan or whatever. But the fact that they would line up at that Allen Park facility into the parking lot hours before they would be let in to watch these guys run around in their shorts and play and not even play games against each other, you know, and do drills. It was just fascinating to me. It's like a some cultural psychology thing, but I just could not get over, you know, how obsessed people were with it. And, you know, but the NFL has always been very structured, very loose. And when you cover baseball, it was always like the locker rooms open for three hours before the game. You can sit there and talk to the guys and they're just sitting there doing nothing. You know, and we just, you would sit there and you talked about anything you could talk and then you could talk and they would get into these in-depth conversations and it happened day after day with football. It's not the same. You know, the locker rooms open for a certain period of time, like one or two days a week, you go in, you kind of get your stuff and there's so many people, reporters in there, they get it and then you go out. But I think, you know, but there was still this obsession and that people just wanted more and more about the football. I think it's the nature of football in our country more than anything else. But isn't it also just sort of strange that the team was so miserably bad for so long that the fans, as you're saying, are still showing up at training camp to to watch them run around, even though we knew they were probably going to be bad again and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's ingrained in the culture of our city, right, with Thanksgiving and um, all these years. And there's hope, right? Isn't that the whole thing? And this is why recruiting has turned into such a big thing in college, the hope of what could be and what is out there really is the is the renewal every year that it could be different every week every year could be something more and i think that's why people get so into the draft right and we're gonna have the draft here you know this great it's ironic right that lions finally get good and the draft is the one thing that became such an obsession over all the years (laughs) because it was the hope for the lions to be better and now they're going to be better and the draft's gonna be here which is going to be wild. And I think that's where you're going to see the power of the NFL, right? You see that 300,000 people are going to be in Detroit in the beginning of May. And just to watch people like these executives decide who they're going to have on the team for the next year, it's going to be, it's going to be a wild obsession. And when that comes around, because you're going to, it's going to be unlike anything that's ever happened in the city, I think, because it happened the last couple of years, you've seen it everywhere else, but that's the NFL. And I think the NFL, even now, it's bigger, obviously, than it ever has been. What is it, 90-something, 90, 90 of the top 100 shows in the 
in 2023 were NFL football games or something like that. Something obscene, obscene like that. Sporting events. It's it's an unparalleled behemoth, and I think that that's what's happened in this city. You know, there's a there's an attachment to this team, and maybe because they were losing, it grew. I think that there may you know sometimes you get this is something that we talked about on as I've gone around with the book and why people were so into the, interested in the 1997 Michigan team is because this is the one that won. And it, for all Michigan's success, you know, this was the only championship team for 75 years until obviously this year. And that was something that people always latched onto. And they had this connection to that. And that's the thing with the Lions, you know, because they never won. I mean, if you were the Patriots, yeah, everyone was the Patriots, but they kept winning and they won titles. So none of those teams were identified. The Lions, it was always this hope. So the, because they never won, you know, there was always this connection to them and that hope that everyone's in this together kind of thing, too. And maybe there's some identification. You can take it to another level, identification with the city of Detroit and it, its downturn and then it trying to come back and stuff like that. But that maybe is a little theoretical for me. I'm telling you, that's the long form piece that needs to get written. Maybe it's time for you to get back in the game here, Mark, (laughs) and uh, put together one final uh, piece about the Lions, the city, the connection. We've been University of Michigan, and then just charge $199 for it or something (laughs) like that, right? Become your own magazine. Um, I still think there is a world for long form uh, journalism and stuff like that. I hope uh, we continue to have it somewhere or else, Don, I guess we don't have a podcast anymore. There's a few fleeting places out there now, but not that many. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, you can uh, purchase Mark's book, Mountaintop, the inside story of Michigan's 1997 title climb. It really is an amazing story with great anecdotes using old school sports, long form journalism. And uh, I highly (laughs) recommend people go and check it out. Mark, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it always. Don, it's been a pleasure talking to you this week. I look forward to talking to you next week. Absolutely, Zach. Have a good one. Take care.